0: Welcome to uh, the London School of Economics, everyone, to uh, this evening's event, which is hosted by the Financial Market Group, Systemic Risk Center, and the Center for Macroeconomics. So I'm Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor of economics here at the London School of Economics. Before I introduce this evening's speakers, I would like to make uh, a couple comments about this evening's event. So please turn your mobile on silent. but you can still use it in case you want to tweet. The hashtag is given over there, LSE MPC. Uh, The plan is to record this evening's event, uh, and if everything goes well, it should be available on the website of LSE Conferences, and probably of the website of the host, too. Uh, The plan for this evening is as follows. So David Miles will start. After that, Professor Goetard will give a couple comments. And then after that, you'll be given a chance to ask some questions. So now let me introduce today's speakers. (coughs) So David Miles is an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee and a professor of finance at Imperial College. He has uh, an impressive CV, has worked in the financial sector, and now he has a prestigious job at the Bank of England. But... I just want to list one thing that I'm very grateful of. Is He's written an excellent textbook in macroeconomics. I was a professor at London Business School, and they have to teach MBAs. And teaching macro to MBAs is not that easy, but he made it very easy. We have such a great textbook which really looks at case studies and data. Anyway, so if you're looking for the textbook, uh, I don't think he brought copies uh, that you can I buy wish and I sign, had. I but wish um, I had. I'm sure it's still available. <laughs> So Charles Goetard is one of the reasons why I'm very proud to be uh, you know, a faculty member at the London School of Economics. Uh, he has an incredible CV with lots of you know, impressive uh, publications, but there's lots of academics who have that. In addition, Charles, he has a in- remarkable knowledge of institutions, and actually he has a remarkable memory of things that happened in the past. Uh, so I'm sure that... This evening is going to be a very insightful evening. So please join me in welcoming David Muff. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much for, it, for those very kind words, particularly for the plug for the textbook, which is available in all good bookshops. Um, it has the extremely original title, Macroeconomics does have a subtitle, Understanding the Global uh, Economy. It's a cracking read. Um, I am going to talk not about my textbook. Um, I'm going to talk about how best a central bank might give useful information about uh, how it will set monetary policy. I'm going to be talking about forward guidance. As many people will know, um, here in the UK, the Bank of England has been giving some more explicit formal guidance about monetary policy since August of last year, since August 2013. The Fed in the US has been giving uh, rather more explicit forward guidance than it has tended to in the past as well. And it's a strategy that's come in for um, some uh, criticism here in the UK, probably in the US as well. And It was that criticism really that made me choose this particular uh, title for the talk, Mensch Tracht und Gott Lacht, which is a, um, a Yiddish proverb. Uh, it roughly means that men, men make their plans and God just laughs. In other words, people think they're being very farsighted and drawing up plans as to what they'll do in life, but things just turn out differently, and God looks down on it all and smiles and laughs. And Woody Allen had a version of this, this is the kind of Woody Allen version of the same uh, idea, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. And as I say, here in the UK, I think there has been a good deal of criticism about the forward guidance that the Bank of England has given and the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, the nine people who uh, meet every month and vote and decide about monetary policy. I'm one of them. There's been a good deal of criticism about the guidance that we have given. Criticism that we've been flip-flopping, that it's been changing, uh, and maybe God is up there laughing at us, I don't know. It's a bit hard to, hard to tell. Um, the real question that I want to address uh, this evening is about something we can say something substantive about, uh, uh, and it's this. Uh, it, it's, it's really the issue about what is the most useful way for a central bank to, to, to give information about how it will set uh, policy. Um, incidentally there's, there's a kind of version or I, I like to think that some, something that Mike Tyson the boxer said is, is kind of gets at some of the same ideas as the Yiddish proverb and Woody Allen I mean, that, this is a famous quote from Mike Tyson um, I kind of like that um, but anyone who gets in a ring and is with Mike Tyson is surprised when they get punched in the mouth really hasn't thought ahead uh, very clearly. Um, I said there'd been some criticism of the forward guidance that the bank has given, just to give you some idea. Let's, um, let me just jump on. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll come to the criticism in, in a moment. Um, I want to think about a spectrum of choices that a central bank might face when thinking about what kind of guidance to give. And two ends of the spectrum are are easy to define really. At one end of the spectrum, I mean I've called called it the Montague Norman end of the spectrum. Montague Norman was governor of the Bank of England for an an unusually long period uh, in the early and middle part of the last century. Famous for uh, the dictum that a central bank should never apologise and never explain what it did. So the Montague-Norman end of the spectrum on what information a central bank should give about how it will set policy in the future is what you might call the completely vague end. It would be a statement we'll just do whatever we think is best given the goals that we have. Which actually in the absence of any more specific statement about what the goals precisely are is about as vague a statement as you could possibly give. So that's one end of my spectrum, if you like, about the guidance that a central bank uh, could give on monetary policy. Just say, well, we'll we'll do what's right at the time. At the other end of the spectrum... uh, is an explicit commitment to set policy in a particular way. And by that I mean not just a description of the sorts of things that the Monetary Policy Committee will think about, not just uh, what you might call a reaction function telling you how interest rates might move if this or that happened, but even more explicit than that, actually a commitment to a particular path for interest Rates. So a commitment to a particular policy setting. Now, describing this as a spectrum is, is really talking slightly uh, loosely in the sense that there is more than one dimension in which... Guidance about future policy can differ, whereas if you think of a spectrum, it's really a straight line. So it's, it's, it's slightly uh, a loose talk here, even though I think it, it's, it's helpful in some sense to frame the question in terms of where on a spectrum it might be sensible for a central bank to sit. Now, there are lots of points, of course, in between these two end points. So a central bank could decide... Uh, To move away from the Montague-Norman side, which is just, we'll do whatever we think is appropriate, to a much clearer statement about the the specific aims of policy, which could be an inflation target or or some kind of mixture of an inflation target with an unemployment or output target. So that would clearly be going beyond just the vague statement, we as a committee will do what's appropriate at the time. Further along, again, the spectrum, away from the Montague-Norman end, would be uh, perhaps producing a forecast based on a particular path for interest rates, without saying that that's the path that the Monetary Policy Committee favours or thinks is most likely. One could just take, for example, the path of interest rates implied by financial markets prices, by the yield curve, produce a forecast-based forecast based on that with some commentary about the economic outlook alongside a statement about what the aims of policy are. And to some extent that's where the Bank of England has been for most of the time that the Monetary Policy Committee has existed. It was set up in 1997. Further along the spectrum again might be a statement that these are the goals of policy, here's what the economic outlook Uh, Appears to be. And here is a path that the committee thinks is the most likely path that it will want to follow, and some assessment of how volatile interest rates might be around that path. So I want to think about where it might be sensible to place oneself on this, this spectrum. I'm looking for a slide which has gone missing, but never mind. Um, Let me make two simple points before getting down to the issue about where you might want to be. I think the first point I'd like to make is that in some ways economic theory is not terribly helpful. An agreed-upon body of economic theory that's relevant to this issue doesn't really speak to the question where on the spectrum you might want to be. And that's because many, I think it's because, many economic models actually assume that all the people in an economy share the same information and they're rational and they understand the economic environment and therefore, as long as they understand, as long as people outside the central bank understand what it is that the central bank is aiming to do, they can go and figure out then what the central bank is most likely to do in the future to achieve its aims. And if they understand the risks, the uncertainty that exists in the economy, they can probably also figure out the probabilities that interest rates are a long way above or a long way below the single most likely path that the central bank might follow. So in an idealised economic model, and a lot of economic models that you read about um, in in textbooks and in academic journals, do make these idealised assumptions about people having common knowledge and being rational and being able to compute the optimal strategy. In these models, as long as the central bank makes clear what it is trying to do what its objectives are, people can figure out what's the chances of interest rates being set at different levels into the future. And in a sense there isn't a particularly interesting question within this this class of economic models about what kind of guidance should the central bank give, beyond the central bank making it clear what its objectives are. There's a slight wrinkle to do with issues of timing consistency. This is a situation where the central bank's optimal policy that people can figure out may be one which, as you go down the road, the central bank would actually want to deviate from. And Mike Woodford, in a lot of what he writes about guidance, talks quite a lot about these time inconsistency problems. I'm not going to talk about that very much this evening, except to say that I think time inconsistency, probably given the kind of objectives the Bank of England has is probably um, not a terribly significant issue, and and people may want to come back and talk a little bit about that in questions. Um, The point I want to make, though, at at, at the moment is that in many economic models, there really isn't a terribly interesting practical issue about what forward guidance to uh, give. The second simple point I want to make at the outset is that a lot of the criticism that's made of the guidance that central banks have given, certainly criticism of the Bank of England, to some extent the Fed in the US, I think actually, when you dig beneath it, boils down to a very simple criticism. So what is the criticism that I'm talking about Well, people say things like the Bank of England has flip-flopped around. It started out in August of last year saying that it was following a particular rule and it wouldn't change interest rates. It wouldn't increase interest rates until unemployment fell beneath 7%, and then it switched to something slightly different. People talk about flip-flopping, a lack of transparency, that there's changing messages coming out of the central bank, why aren't they more transparent, and so on. And I think that much of that criticism really boils down to the criticism that the Bank of England here in the UK, perhaps the Fed in the US, is just not giving as much certainty about the future path of interest rates as it could. And it is certainly the case that if it wanted to, a central bank could commit to a particular path of interest rates. It's just that that probably isn't a very desirable strategy and I want to take a little bit of time explaining why I think that would be a very undesirable strategy. Much of the criticism of central banks on forward guidance doesn't come explicitly in the form of saying why don't you exactly tell us what the interest rate is it comes in a slightly more indirect form talking about a lack of transparency flip-flopping, changing one month seeming to be likely to increase interest rates sooner and then the next month it looks like you might be increasing interest rates a bit later I think that criticism when it's applied to the Bank of England can't really be um, justified in terms of the central bank not giving information about its decisions. Here in the UK, the Bank of England actually gives quite a lot of information about the decision making process. So, for example, uh, uh, 10 days or so after each of our monthly meetings, the minutes of the meetings are produced. It's quite a long uh, description of the discussions we've had, the information we had in front of us, who voted for what. There are uh, four times a year an inflation report is produced with explicit forecasts for how the economy might evolve for a particular path for uh, interest rates. Members of the monetary policy committee regularly give evidence to the treasury committee. They're televised and there's lots of speeches. There's no shortage of speeches given by members of the monetary policy committee. So I think the criticism actually isn't there's not, you don't tell us anything about what you're doing. It's that there's not as much certainty as there could be. So the first question I want to address really is a question about, on my spectrum, does it make sense to go to the other end from the completely vague end, the end which says this is what the path of interest rates will be at least for the next few years? Might that be a good place to get to? After all, it would get rid of a lot of uncertainty about where interest rates might be going. And generally we think uncertainty is a bad Thing. So, might it make sense to stick to commit to a particular setting of policy for some uh, horizons? Let me start out with a theoretical proposition about many models of the economy, and it is this: that actually trying to stick to a particular path for nominal interest rates probably comes at quite a high price in the sense that if at the end of some horizon when you fix the interest rate you aren't willing to move it by potentially a large amount you may get instabilities in the economy. That's a property of many uh, economic models. I want to go beyond that sort of general proposition and use a particular model to try and illustrate some of the what I think are very serious drawbacks in committing to a particular path for interest rates. So I'm going to show you some simulations, some economic projections based on a particular rather simple model of the economy. It's a model which has several different sources of uncertainty within it. And I'm going to use it to explore this issue about what price you might pay for sticking to a particular path of interest rates. (laughs) The model is very simple. Um, There are details of it in the paper that will be available on the Bank of England website. Uh, In fact, it's available right now. There's a a sort of detailed version of my comments which describe this economic model and all the equations and how I do the simulations. I'm not going to spend very much time at all this evening talking about the nuts and bolts of the model. I'll just give you the bare bones of it. Basically, it's built around three simple uh, relationships. One which describes the evolution of output. I am going to assume that if the central bank sets an interest rate at a level such that real interest rates are um, ab- above a neutral. Uh, level, then that begins to dampen demand in the economy. In other words, there's, 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 there's an IS curve that mean, means much to most people in the room. Uh, there's a negative relationship between the real interest rate and the level of demand in the economy. So, simple relationship number one. Second simple relationship is a link between inflation and the level of output relative to a full capacity. Level. So if output output and demand in the economy are above some level of normal capacity, inflation will be moving up, Uh, and if output is beneath uh, uh, that, that level and there's slack in the economy, then inflation will tend to be moving down. Third relationship is a link between supply capacity, or productivity more accurately, and what happens to demand output itself. So the idea here is there may be so-called hysteresis. In other words, if you have a period of very weak demand in the economy, that may have some long-term permanent damaging impact upon the supply capacity of the economy. But that the key, the nature of these three relationships is uncertain and unknown. So I'm going to assume that we don't quite know how powerful monetary policy is in reducing demand if you increase interest rates or boosting it if you uh, decrease them. And I'm going to calibrate the model by assuming that this source of uncertainty and indeed the others I'll talk about are such that on some range you don't know where the power of these forces are. Another source of uncertainty is... Um, how much slack there is in the economy. So I'm going to make an explicit assumption about that, which I think has some relevance to where we are in the UK right now. I'm going to assume that you don't know where on a range of 0 to 4% the amount of spare capacity or slack there is in the economy. And you're ignorant enough about where you are in, on that range to just attach a flat probability in the whole range. You have a uniform probability distribution on the amount of slack. It's somewhere in the zero to four percent range. And these other sources of uncertainty about, for example, how much growth in demand and output itself will affect supply capacity, and how fast the economy would grow uh, at a neutral level of policy, there's uncertainty about those things as well, So there are four sources of uncertainty and the central bank has to work out um, what it's going to do about monetary policy given that it, it, it knows the probability distributions of these characteristics of the economy but it doesn't know the actual true nature of the economy in which it is operating. And I want to think about first of all setting policy in a fairly flexible way. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that right now. Imagine that the central bank understands how little it understands about the economy. It knows the risks that are out there. And it's going to decide how to set policy, what kind of rule it's going to follow through time. And in fact, what it's going to do is the following. It's going to work out what's the best way to adjust policy over time as it learns more about inflation and output it's going to work out what's the best way to move interest rates by reacting to the actual outcomes for inflation and the growth of output, or the level of output, um, how how it's evolved over time. What do I mean by the best way to do that? I'm going to assume that what the central bank is trying to do is to try and keep inflation close to a target level. That's what the Bank of England is trying to do. Our target level is... Inflation at 2%. It's trying to do that, but at the same time, it worries about output deviating significantly from full capacity. And it worries about these things in a particular way. It tries to minimize the squared deviations of inflation from target and output from what you might call the full capacity level. So that's what it's trying to do. And it's going to come up with a rule for setting interest rates depending on what's happened to output and inflation, in order to minimise the costs of deviating from the inflation target and output from its neutral level. And it's going to find the rule which minimises the expected value of those costs, taking into account the uncertainty that it faces. And what will come out of that is a way for setting interest rates that depend upon inflation and output. Think of it as an optimally derived Taylor rule, a Taylor rule being a way of linking interest rates to outcomes for inflation and output. And I'm going to show you what the paths for the output gap, output itself, inflation and the interest rate are when you solve that model in that way and work out the optimal rule for setting interest rates. And I'll try and do it fairly quickly. So I assume that where you start out from, remember I said the amount of slack in the economy could be somewhere between 0 and 4%. Well, on average, it's going to be 2%. we are going to use a random number generator to generate lots of outcomes for the economy and show you paths for output, slack, inflation, and interest rates, show probability distributions for those things based on simulating this model thousands and thousands of times for particular realizations of these random characteristics of the equation. <coughs> so here's what happens when you play this game. These are quarters. So we go ahead four years or so, 16 quarters. We start in a position where on average I've set this thing up so the amount of slack is 2%. We then work out what happens as time evolves and we get a probability distribution. So here's the average thing. This is the mean and the median are pretty close together. This is the amount of slack policy is set in such a way that on average down, down the middle path, the, the, the most likely paths in the middle here, the, the well, I said the most likely, the, media, the median and the mean, uh, you close the output gap and then it kind of fluctuates pretty close to zero. And we can draw pictures like that for output growth. I won't dwell on these too, too much in detail. Except to say that these paths for what happens in the economy, these are probability distributions. So This is the the middle of the distribution. This is the uh, 10th percentile, the outcome where 90% of the outcomes for growth are stronger than it. And here's the 90th percentile, where 90% of the outcomes for growth are weaker than this. So we've got some pretty wide bands of uncertainty here, which reflect the fact that there's a lot of uh, randomness in this economy. These are comparable, in some sense, to the kind of pictures that the Bank of England produces... Uh, And this is from the latest inflation report of the Bank of England a couple of months ago. This is a picture of uh, outcomes for GDP growth. This is conceptually at least similar to what I'm generating in my very simplified economic model. The thing I want to uh, get to really fairly quickly is what happens to to the spread of outcomes for interest rates. But along the way, let me just say one thing about the inflation simulation based on this very simple model. Uh, And that looks like this. So I've calibrated it to start out from roughly where we are in the UK, which is inflation a little bit beneath the target level of 2%. And you run the model thousands and thousands of times. Each time you run it, each individual simulation, there's a different strategy for interest rates. On average... Both the mean and the median, the sort of centres of the distribution, have inflation uh, a little bit beneath the target level and gradually getting back toward it. But there's a chance that inflation turns out rather significantly higher and rather significantly lower. If you look at the ends of the distribution, they're spread out around it. Actually, this distribution for inflation is somewhat narrower, rather significantly narrower, than the picture that, will appear, that appeared in the inflation report, the Bank of England's inflation report. And the reason is worth stressing for just a moment. In the Bank of England's inflation <coughs> fan chart, these are the kind of pictures you can see in the inflation report that we produce four times a year. These are prob- this is a probability distribution for where inflation might go in the future. But it's based on a, a Particular assumption that interest rates just follow the path implied by market forecasts, what the yield curve tells you future interest rates will be. The simulations I'm showing you actually are simulations where we move the interest rate depending on what happens in the future to try to hit an inflation target, and that's why we tend to get a much narrower distribution. Go backwards, a narrower distribution of outcomes for inflation when we do that than in the Bank of England's inflation report picture where actually this is just based on a particular path for interest rates. Let me get to the picture that really, I think, tells the story about the high cost that you would pay if you followed a strategy of fixing the interest rates at the outset. What does this picture (coughs) show? This is the probability distribution for the level of um, bank rate based on the model I've been describing. So on average, what's the, the average strategy that the central bank would follow if it was facing this kind of uncertainty um, and trying to uh, do as best it could? Well, it would start out where we are, which is pretty much um, you know, close, close to zero interest rates, and gradually over time get to a level that's about three and a bit percent a few years down the road, but it's pretty it's pretty gentle. That's the average outcome. And if you wanted to follow a strategy of committing to a single path for interest rates right now at the outset, and then not deviating from it, that's maybe what you would do. You'd say, Okay, this is the path we're gonna follow. However, there's quite a high chance that the optimal interest rate would turn out to be very substantially different from this path that you might want to commit to at the outset. After all, look what happens. I mean, the 90th percentile is way up here. So 10% of the time, the optimal strategy is to increase interest rates very substantially more than on this central path. So that if you look three or four years down the road... 10% of the time, the optimal interest rate in some sense is at least 2.5%, at least 2.5%, higher than the central path. And 10% of the time, going three or four years down the road, 10% of the time, the optimal interest rate is about 2% lower than the central path. And I conclude from that that the price that you would pay for giving people certainty about the path of interest rates over the next few years actually is potentially very high. So much so that I think it's pretty clear one would want to reject on my spectrum being at the end which said, right, we will tell you what we are going to do in future on monetary policy. Maybe some advantages in doing that, but I think it comes at a very high price. And the price, really, is that things pan out in such a way that that interest rate is substantially different from the right interest rate uh, down the road. Now, you might say, okay, maybe that's right. Why not then just show this kind of picture? Why not just generate this kind of probability distribution for interest rates and that will be your way of giving guidance on future monetary policy. And that's not such a daft suggestion. I want to come back in a while to talk about some of the pros and cons of following that strategy. Let me put a slightly different question though first, which is, let's suppose that this was indeed your assessment in a central bank of the probability distributions of different outcomes for interest rates. And ask the question, how might one describe in everyday language the key features of this outlook? Bearing in mind that producing a picture like this is not everyday language. To, to actually understand what this graph means, you need to know quite a bit about statistics and random variables and outcomes and probabilities, and that's going to just go over the heads of the vast majority of the population. So ask yourself for one moment the question, how might you describe this, this assessment of the possibilities of monetary policy into the future in everyday language? And here's here's what you might come up with. Interest rates are likely to rise gradually from their current very low levels, probably to a level that's (coughs) short of what people used to think of normal. People used to think of normal as about 5% for the UK. If you look at that picture I just showed you, on average it got up to about three and a bit percent. So you might say they're probably going to rise, probably going to be gradual, probably going to be to a level short of what you used to think of normal, say 5% for bank rate, the interest rate the central bank sets. But of course, the exact path that interest rates will follow can't be known in advance since how the economy evolves will itself be, uh, uh, is uncertain. So this kind of guidance is more in the way of an expectation of the central bank uh, rather than a commitment. And it seems to me that's kind of everyday language that gets across the message uh, from that picture. It's also pretty similar, and I'll come back to this um, just in a moment, it's pretty similar to the message that we've actually been putting out on the monetary policy committee for uh, where we think things might, how things might play out here in the UK in terms of interest rates over the next <coughs> few uh, years. Um, just in case you may think that I've overplayed all this uncertainty stuff, after all, I've said, well, we don't know where slack is. It's you know, maybe it's as low as zero, maybe it's as high as four percent. We don't know how the, the uh, economy will grow if we keep interest rates at roughly the same level. I've stressed all this kind of uncertainty. Maybe you're thinking, well, central banks always go on about all this uncertainty. Don't they kind of slightly overplaying their hand? I, I don't think that's right. I mean, I really think that the level of uncertainty that exists, not just in the UK, uh, but across, ac- across um, the, the world, really is very substantial. I want to just briefly illustrate... Uh, that by looking at some forecasts that people—I say people—economists here in the UK uh, who produce forecasts. This is not the central banks. This is sort of economists. Um, you know, some of whom are in cities, some of whom are in research institutes, some, some of them are academics. Forecasts that people have produced at various points in the past. So, what is this chart? This chart shows the. Assessed probability from a large number of forecasters in the UK about what's the chances of growth in the UK falling in different ranges. And these were forecasts made at the beginning of 27, 2007, 2007. Um, and if at that point you'd ask people, well, what are the chances of GDP growth being um, you know, in the range 0 to 1 or 1 to 2 uh, a couple of years ahead, which is second quarter of 2009, Um, the average probability attached to growth of GDP being less than minus 1% was 6%. So in other words, people said it was 94% likely that growth would be greater than minus 1%. The actual outcome was about minus 7% for the growth of GDP. And um, I'm not going to go through all these tables. I mean, they all make the same point, actually, that the assessed probability that people put upon both growth and inflation falling in different ranges one or two years ahead just turned out to be really pretty pretty way off um, as I say I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these graphs, they're, they're on these tables they're all in the paper on the Bank of England website if people want to look a bit more, more um, at them maybe I'll say something about this one though so this was a forecast made um, a, bit of a while back now 2006 about where the exchange rate might be uh, three years ahead, which was um, beginning of 2009. This is a forecast the exchange rate index. This is is now just the range of forecasts. The lowest was that the exchange rate index might be as low as about 89, the highest 101. The outcome was 78. So that's outside the range of the forecasts that were made. Let me show you finally an implicit forecast, now this is not economists making forecasts, this is financial markets in a sense making forecasts. This is uh, uh, a probability distribution based on options prices for the price of crude oil uh, as at September 2007. And at that point, the implied probability distribution for where the price of oil would be a year down the road Looked like that. So, most of the probability was that oil prices would be somewhere in the range of what, you know, 60 to 90. The probability that oil prices were going to be uh, as high as they actually turned out to be or higher was 2.8%. In other words, people were 97% confident, you might say, that the oil price would not be as high as it turned out to be. You can move on a year, Um, and now where were we Uh, in March 2008, well there's a probability distribution for where oil prices would be a year later, that is March 2009, high probability attached to outcomes in the range 80 to 120. The actual outcome was about 55. So now there was a 97% probability that the oil price would be higher than it actually turned out to be. So I I don't think I've exaggerated the degree of uncertainty for outcomes uh, even if we're only looking a year or two down the road. Well... If fixing the path and committing to a particular level of interest rates in the future is not the right strategy, almost certainly, um, what might be a better strategy? As I say, in many ways, economic theory is not terribly helpful because many models just say that people can work everything out if you just tell them what the central bank's objectives are. Now, in practice, people can't do that. Easily, even if the central bank told everybody exactly what its objectives are, unless everybody had the same sorts of information about what the economic outlook was as the central bank, they wouldn't be able to work out what a probability distribution for interest rates might uh, be. Now, maybe it would be helpful if the central bank supplied a so-called reaction function. That is, if a central bank said, not just, here is what our aims are, but here is how we are likely to respond to different economic environments in the future and set interest rates in different ways if inflation, unemployment output, uh, exchange rates, oil prices move in particular ways. That's what I mean by supplying a reaction function. And there's some attractions to that, but I think in practice, it turns out to be a very difficult thing to do. For one thing, many policy committees, and that's certainly true of the Bank of England's policy committee, um, each individual member decides what they think the right thing to do is, uh, and that's how we tot up the votes on the Monetary Policy Committee here in the Bank of England in London. And different people might actually, if you, if you force people to try and write down what their own reaction function was, it's not obvious that all nine people will come up with the same thing, So there's a sort of practical problem is how do you you come up with a unique reaction function when you have a many-member committee? Even if you ignore that problem and you ignore the fact that the current members of the committee can't really commit to the decisions of future committees which have different people on them, you still have to face the problem about what does a reaction function actually look like. It might need to be very complicated in order to come even close to the kinds of processes that a monetary policy committee actually goes through when it tries to set interest rates. So a reaction function, if it's going to be realistic, might be of the form... If A and B and C happen and we don't get X, Y and Z, then we're gonna set interest rates following this particular equation which shows that they depend on what's happened to inflation, where unemployment is, the exchange rate, commodity prices, wage settlements, and a bunch of other things. It would be a pretty complicated thing to try and describe to people. And if it were that complicated, I think people would begin to ask, what use do you think this is? Now, again, you may think I am exaggerating the difficulties of a central bank coming out with a reaction function. But let me show you for a moment what the policy rule that we on the Monetary Policy Committee came up with in August 2013 to describe how we were going to set policy over a period until unemployment fell beneath a certain level. This is the succinct short version of that statement. This is, in a sense, our reaction function. I think it's about 400 words, and in many ways it was a simplification on what we actually uh, were trying to do. So I do not um, think one should underestimate the difficulty of saying, well, what a central bank should do is tell us what they're going to do in the future, depending on how the economy plays out. Let me finally come to the strategy of essentially producing a figure like the one I showed you earlier. Remember I showed a, fi- a figure which said, if we do a simulation on a model of the economy with different sources of uncertainty, work out what the optimal policy response, the optimal policy rule is and then do lots of simulations and then show the probabilities of interest rates moving in different ranges could be. Would that be the right way to provide guidance on future interest rate policy? Well, it might be, but it's a pretty tall order. What you need to be able to come up with that picture what you need to be able to come up with the same sort of figure as I showed you, based on a very simplified model of my own, not a model agreed with other members of the committee, what you need to do is all those uh, things on the screen there. So, first of all, you need an assessment of all the random factors that might hit the economy with their probabilities. So you need need an explicit probability distribution for all the random things that might come along that have a significant impact on inflation output and such. You need a model of how those random shocks actually impact the things you care about, inflation, growth, etc. You need a model for how monetary policy then feeds back on those outcomes and can be used to offset the impact of shocks that might take inflation and output away from desirable paths. You then need some way of working out what the optimal policy is, and you need the committee to reach an agreement on all those things. And that's a pretty tall order. I think one of the tallest bits of this tall order is actually being able to explicitly put a probability distribution on all the shocks that might hit the economy. And it really goes to an issue that many great economists have written about at length, in particular Keynes and Knight in the 20th century, about the difference between risk and uncertainty. So risk is a situation where you may not know the outcome but you at least have a good idea about the probabilities of different outcomes rolling a dice, playing roulette uncertainty is where you struggle to even think about attaching probabilities to different outcomes and I think many of the outcomes, the, many of the kind of events that will have a very material impact on inflation output, and employment are really ones where it's extremely difficult to think about the distribution of probabilities of different outcomes. Where does this take us to? Let me try and draw this together and reach some uh, tentative conclusions. Idealized models of the economy would say that it's enough for the central bank to just say what its objectives are. Possibly also giving a reaction function. I think in practice that's not very helpful, to be honest. Um, Because unless outsiders have as good information as the central bank on the economic outlook, even if they could understand and use a reaction function, they wouldn't be able to map it into... A probability distribution for interest rate. Because it's not enough just to know a reaction function, you need to know what are the chances that oil prices move in this way, or that uh, the amount of slack is this level rather than that level. And anyway... Asking a central bank to come up with an explicit, easy-to-understand reaction function is almost certainly asking it to do something (laughs) which is not going to be a good approximation to how they actually reach decisions. I think, however, the central bank giving some assessment of the likelihood of interest rates following different paths is itself really rather likely to be helpful, particularly in situations such as we're now in the UK, in which past, the past is not a very good guide. I mean, where are we right now in the UK? Extraordinarily low interest rates, which have been held at this exceptional level for uh, more than five years. An enormous expansion in the balance sheet of the Bank of England under the strategy of quantitative easing. So super expansionary monetary policy. And we don't really have a good history to draw on for people to work out well what is likely to happen next when you start from this extraordinary position so I do think the central bank giving some assessment of relative likelihoods of different paths of interest rates is likely to be helpful constructing an explicit probability distribution along the lines that I showed you in the figure we had a, a little while ago however is extraordinarily challenging and it may be an example of trying to provide information which is spuriously accurate if you cannot actually attach in any sensible way explicit probabilities to forces that are likely to have a big impact on monetary policy then what are we really doing if we just produce some picture showing rather confidently estimated probability bands for interest rates Now other central banks do do that, Um, the Swedish central bank, the Norwegian central bank, the New Zealand central bank do things along those lines, and I'm not saying that that's hopeless and a useless uh, task to try and, uh, uh, a useless road to go down, I'm kind of open minded about it, I'm just not convinced that you really are providing very helpful information uh, by producing probability distributions for interest rates. I think that any, any forward guidance you give really has to pass three tests. I think it needs to be, first of all, comprehensible by a very substantial proportion of the population. I think the second thing is that it should not be spuriously Precise, but it should reflect how policy is actually going to be set in a world in which it's very difficult to assess probabilities of particular outcomes. And I think the third thing, any guidance you give, is that it should be substantial or substantive. I should say something useful. And currently where we are, I think, is a situation where it might be more useful than coming out with explicit probabilities for interest rates. And less misleading, and indeed even more accurate, to just give forms of guidance that are more qualitative to do, such as that interest rate rises will probably be gradual and likely to be a level below the old normal. That's the guidance we're giving on the monetary policy committee uh, at the moment. I think it does say something substantial, and I think most people can understand it. And maybe that's a real achievement. Uh, and maybe to try and ask for much more is actually asking for something that is uh, infeasible and actually is potentially misleading. Thank you.
0: So Professor Goetard will now give his uh, reaction...
1: Back, are you, or are you just going to stay? Okay, if you just talk into the
2: microphone, okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Right, good evening. Um, David's excellent and very balanced presentation has an insoluble conundrum at its very heart which is how can you possibly give useful forward guidance when you really don't know what the future is going to hold because the central bank is, as I think David made quite clear as uncertain about the future as the rest of us none of us has a crystal ball even including the governor or Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. And I remember well uh, that when I was in the Bank uh, for some 17 years, between 68 and 85, and then again on the MPC, uh, whenever there was a forecast, or virtually whenever, and there was a forecast about three or four times a year, the person who presented the forecast would always open with the phrase Conditions for this forecast are uniquely uncertain. (laughs) You know, it is the future, thank God, is unknowable. Um, And there is a great deal more uncertainty than a world in which we have a, a reasonable concept of probability distributions. Let me give just another example among the many from the many that David gave you could argue um, that the actual outcome of the Scottish referendum had a probability distribution because there were loads and loads of polls and you could assess from those polls together where you, whether you thought they were sort of likely to be biased what the probability of a no vote or a yes vote but had there been a yes vote I think the consequentials would have been extremely uncertain. We would actually not have any basis for being able to make a clear prediction or for knowing what the probability distribution of that outcome would have been. It would have complicated uh, forecasting uh, for the UK had there been a yes vote um, really quite enormously. So I am really extremely um, sympathetic to really virtually everything that David has said. Uh, And I was going to embroider uh, David's uh, excellent presentation in three ways, but he actually answered one of them uh, in his presentation uh, from the text that I had briefly seen before. I think I would just make two uh, embroidery points, and then if I can actually... Uh, handle the PowerPoint. I will try and make a slightly different point, which he did not cover. Uh, The two embroidery points are as follows. The first one is that David didn't comment uh, on a recent issue, which I think is worthy of a comment, which is the difference between a time-contingent forward guidance and a state-contingent forward guidance. Now, what I mean by a time-contingent forward guidance is something like we are not going to or we're very unlikely to change interest rates or to raise interest rates for the next year. While a state-contingent forward guidance says we probably we won't raise interest rates while unemployment is higher than X or we can choose some uh, other variable. Now, the reason I most central banks, when they started on the forward guidance, including the Fed and the Bank of England, started on time, uh, time contingent. And the reason why they left time contingent was that it was ambiguous in terms of its implications. Because the world at large might view a time contingent forward guidance, i.e. that we won't raise interest rates for a year or whatever, as implying that the forecasts of the Bank of England or the Fed were much more pessimistic than the forecasts outside. So that time contingent led to an ambiguity while state contingent did not. On the other hand, state contingent did tie you a bit more firmly to a particular forecast. And as we know, in a world in which relationships between economic variables are, are highly uncertain, um, that can end up with a certain amount of egg on the face. Um, as <clears throat> I think impact the, um, the months from August... 2013 uh, to February, March 2014 um, effectively uh, indicated. Uh, But generally I think that David's paper was extremely good. I just want to move on to one thing. Let me see if I can get on no, that's his. I think if I go right through yours as fast as I can, I eventually get on to mine. Now brace yourself for the technical brilliance of my particular bit. (laughs) <laughs> nope, it's not there uh, Well that's a pity oh,
1: no, no, no.
2: You go on Okay, let's go on Yep, <laughs> <laughs> there you see <laughs> <It was good. laughs> Okay, now now I want to talk about the relationship between uh, forecasts and outcomes And if you are aware of, or if you have ever tracked, the relationship between forecasts and outcomes, you will see that it it tends to follow this kind of pattern, where when things are going down fairly sharply, the forecast is always that it's going to recover. Whereas when things are going up very rapidly, the forecast is that they actually won't. So that um, this is a result of a couple of features uh, of the macroeconomic world. Uh, One is that we tend to feel that we have some knowledge of the existence of a fundamental equilibrium for some level or for some rate of change, and we tend to believe, based on the past, that the economy will get back to that, and it cycles around it. However, we are extremely bad at forecasting a turning point, which means that whenever anybody undertakes a forecast, whether it's in the central bank or otherwise, what they tend to do is to assume a mixture of continuation momentum of whatever has been happening beforehand, together with some probability that the economy will vert, revert to the sort of mean fundamental equilibrium. So when things are going down, the forecast is always that they'll get better and go back to the equilibrium, and when things are at the top, there's a forecast well this can't last, we'll go back to the equilibrium, and this actually, although you can see that and if you do ever do these kind of exercises, look at forecasts against outcomes, you will see that they're always of this kind. The forecasts always appear to, in some sense, to be systematically wrong. But if you do a mean squared exercise, in fact it does minimize the mean squared because if you go on forecasting going down, when it does turn, the error then becomes enormous. So this is actually a mean squared minimization of forecast errors. It's also, if you take the whole period in which the cycles are complete, is actually unbiased because the errors that you make here, where you overestimate the likelihood of getting back to the equilibrium, are balanced by the errors that you make there. So it is a mean squared best forecast in that sense. It's an unbiased forecast, but it also tends to be systematically wrong at any point of time because you don't know when the turning point is going to come, which means that it's not a modal forecast. The most likely occurrence at any point of time is that the previous trend, whatever it was, will go on because the probability of a turning point arriving in the next period is relatively small. So that although the forecasts in some sense are the best that you can do, in another sense they're not the most likely at any point of time, because the likelihood of a turning point getting you back to equilibrium is less probable than that the current momentum will continue which is uh, sort of a, an interesting aspect uh, of, the, sort of the interaction between forecasts and outcomes. It's not really relevant to David's, but David's paper was so good that apart from the comment about time contingency... Well, there's one other comment I would like to make, <laughs> final one, which is that I think that David underestimates uh, the relative advantages and, I think, success of the present technique that the Bank of England uses uh, of applying or using uh, the forecasts that are derived uh, from the short-term market yield curve. In other words, the market's own expectations of what the policy rate is going to be over the next few quarters. I think he exaggerates the difficulty... Um, that outsiders have in trying to estimate both the reaction function uh, of the members of the MPC um, and the difficulty of the outsiders have in trying to forecast the probability distribution of shocks. I think that the outside generality of forecasts are probably not much worse and maybe even better than the generality of the forecasts made within not only the Bank of England, but any central bank. And I think he also underestimates the degree to which people, uh, commentators, uh, economists in banks and otherwise, look enormously carefully uh, at what each member of the MPC uh, is likely to do, what they're sort of what their views are. And I can tell you, David, that your words tonight will be being parsed by sort of hundreds of commentators about what they actually mean. Um, And as a result, uh, the market estimates about what the likely future policy reaction of the, uh, the MPC is likely to be are probably pretty darn good without you having to commit to them at all. And I think they're probably about as good a mean path as you're going to get. And this in in many ways is, I think, the perfect, if you like, combination uh, of uh, giving a view about what might happen without the central bank actually in any sense have to com- having to commit itself to it uh, or uh, otherwise Lay its reputation too much on the line. So I think that the the present way of doing it is perhaps better than you prepare to suggest. Anyhow, that's enough.
0: We're running a little bit late, but uh, we want to give you the opportunity now to ask questions. A couple of comments. So try to be concise and limit to one question, and wait until you get the microphone from some of the attendants. Thank you very
3: much. Thank you very much. That was extremely interesting. Um, I wonder, though, and I suspect you may agree with this, whether you identified the most legitimate criticism. So I'm sceptical that one should be critical because we change our minds. That seems entirely legitimate response to changing circumstances. But I must say, as somebody whose profession it is to study all these things, I worry that we've dramatically overcomplicated monetary policy policymaking. Um, I almost sense we derive utility from complexity. Uh, and Woodford being a an extreme case in point. So I wonder if, do we really enhance people's understanding by talking about state contingent threshold based forward guidance, if all we really mean is we will set interest rates according to what the economy does in the future, which sort of seems rather obvious. And and I almost sense that's how you concluded, which was with a very simple description about what the MPC thinks the current regime is, one of you know, rates will be will go up gradually and be lower than what we're used to in the past.
1: Um, yes, I mean, I I I, sh- I share your concern that one can sometimes overcomplicate things to the extent that it's not actually providing useful information to ordinary people and companies out there who need to think about what what. What is the environment likely to look like in terms of interest rates? Um, And the reason I think that trying to provide a reaction function is probably not a very fruitful road to go down is that it would necessarily be a rather complicated thing and only a handful of people would be able to to use it to produce... (coughs) helpful information about risks of interest rates falling in in different regions. And I I think, I feel something slightly similar about producing complicated simulations which give probabilities of interest rates falling in in, in different ranges. And that's why I I do end up thinking that some rather qualitative, easy to understand assessment of The most likely outcomes is probably as as far as one could go, along with stressing that they are simply most likely outcomes and therefore they are absolutely not a commitment to a particular path. They are what is most likely to happen, but other stuff can happen, which means that interest rates could deviate materially from it. Um, I think that's probably about the, the, the most useful, least misleading Least spuriously accurate thing that you could end up doing.
0: So let, let's combine a couple of questions. There's a question over here, and then a question over there, and and then at the front on the balcony.
2: Um, I want to try and reconcile David and Charles, because I think as well as quoting, um, I don't know, a Yiddish. Uh, Truthsayers, Mike Tyson, Woody Allen, you might also think about Humpty Dumpty... Um, and I was. Oh rather, dear, where's this going? <laughs> I was taken by your final slide and your suggestion as to what we should say, which included probabilities and likelies, which was extraordinarily qualitative. And it seemed to me that ultimately, if indeed the hundreds of persons did m- mull over what was meant by probable and likely. The wisdom of the crowd might get us to somewhere near where Charles suggested they were getting to.: Thank you. Um, I
0: just wondered if the um, uh, David particularly could comment on whether, in the real world, lenders have abandoned uh, the base rate as a benchmark, interest lending rates being at three, four percent. Deposit rates being maybe one percent, something like that. Um, actually, will a change in the base rate have a real effect?
3: And if it w- does, when will that actually kick back in?
0: Thank you. Um, my question is perhaps slightly. Uh, uh, I'm a bit ignorant, so. Pardon me for my naivety, but I would like to ask you that markets tend to follow a herd mentality. Uh, And what role or how do forecasts really manage the process, the emotional process happening in the market uh, scenario? Is it just a matter of curtailing or curbing the herd mentality that you depicted from your graph? Um, Or is it a matter of uh, bringing in stability in an uncertain, absolutely wild, ruthless world. Thank you. Um,
1: let, me, let me take the, the, the middle question first, if I may. Uh, the, the question about bank rate, uh, in, so, in some sense, having sort of drifted away from the rates of interest that really matter in the economy. So the rates of interest that matter in the UK economy are you know, mortgage rates, Rates uh, available to com- companies who are, who are borrowing from the banking system, corp- corporate bond yields for, for larger c- companies, and it's certainly true that the spreads between those rates, particularly obviously mortgage rates, the spreads between those rates and bank rates have moved to levels very different from what they were before the financial crisis. So right now, bank rates half percent. It's been half percent for five and a bit years. Uh, but the interest rate, the average interest rate that's quoted on new mortgage loans is probably, um, you know, somewhere around 3 to 4%, depending on how much you want to borrow and what your characteristics are. So that's a kind of 300 basis points, maybe even slightly more, spread between bank rate and the mortgage rate. Well, if you go back before the financial crisis, that spread was much tighter than that. In fact, at times, it was close to zero, So it may look as if this relationship between bank rate and mortgage rates has kind of become broken, and therefore when, as we will uh, in the bank, we start increasing bank rate, there's a a puzzle as to quite what it will mean for mortgage rates. I think the reason why um, there's been this substantial change in the spread between the rate that we set in the Bank of England and the rates that matter in the economy is... Because banks can't charge negative interest rates on deposits. So in the old world, let's go back to the old world pre-financial crisis, say bank rates about five, the interest rates that banks maybe on average pay on their deposits might have been two and a half to three. They could afford to charge only a little bit more than bank rate for mortgages because they were paying two and a half, three percent less than that on their deposits. So that gave you the margin. Of course, when bank rate comes down to half percent, they can't pay minus two or minus three on the deposits, so they're, they're squeezed so much that they can't bring down the mortgage rates as much. Now, <clears throat> when we get interest rates off the floor and uh, back into sort of more normal territory, when we get to two, two and a half, three percent, maybe bank rate some ways down the road, <clears throat> my guess is that what happens is deposit rates don't move up by the same amount, and that means that uh, the spread between bank rate and mortgage rates will probably come in a bit from the 3.5% or so that you've got at the moment and therefore mortgage rates may not go up by as much as bank rate goes up just as they did not fall by as much as bank rate fell in 2007-2008 when bank rate was being cut. I think where we'll get back to, though, is a world that is a bit different. We won't get back to the old world pre-financial crisis where the average mortgage rate was not very different from bank rate because that reflected a view, I think, of banks that there was very little risk in the mortgage market and they were willing to lend at virtually no margin over bank rate. So I suspect we we will get to a world in which there is a more stable relation, once again, between bank rate and mortgage rates but it'll be a stable gap between the two that is not as low as it used to be. The new normal may end up being that mortgage rates on average are a couple of percent above bank rate. If that is true, that's one and a half to two percent bigger spread than was true for the years leading up to the financial crisis and it is one of the reasons why uh, it seems to me quite likely that we will not take bank rate back to the old normal of 5% because if that spread between bank rate and mortgage rates is bigger, you can set bank rate at a slightly lower level and still get back to the same kind of nominal mortgage rates that you, you had in the past. Now, all that is pretty uncertain, which then comes back to the question about Humpty Dumpty and, you know, you, you, you pepper these words probably, likely, in, in one's guidance about monetary policy. And I can see, you know, that can frustrate people, because people will say, well, what you're saying is that anything can happen. You're not saying anything substantive. However, I do do think that one is saying something substantive in saying that from here, the increases in bank rate are likely to be gradual and probably to a level short of the old normal five. So, you know, we may... What does that mean? It may mean that bank rate might level off at three, three and a half, something in that region, rather than getting to the old five. Now, the probably unlikely bit of that statement, I think, are absolutely essential, because without them, it becomes something that looks to ordinary people like a commitment, a commitment that we will follow this particular path. But then you get into all the problems about commitment, <coughs> the things will happen which means that sticking to that commitment will be highly undesirable um, because maybe a somewhat higher or maybe significantly higher or somewhat lower or significantly lower interest rate will be the right thing to do. So I think you can't get around the probably and likely bits of, of, of that sentence, but I do think nonetheless it is, it is saying something substantive that is useful for people in, in thinking about where they might go. I mean, in terms of herd mentality chaos in financial markets um, I think it, 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 it is a phenomena of the world that you do, you do get sharp movements in prices in short periods of time which can feed on themselves um, it's one of the reasons why it's extremely difficult to predict asset prices um, sometimes sharp movements in asset prices are understandable in terms of changes in fundamental economic factors sometimes they're not For whatever reason, it does mean that it's very difficult to predict financial prices, including things like commodity prices. And it's one reason, yet again, why committing to a particular path for interest rates is almost certainly a recipe for um, disaster. Remember that picture that that, um, I showed you earlier, which was a probability distribution for where oil prices might go, which at one point said it was extremely unlikely that oil prices would rise as much as they did over the next year, but then the year after that it was judged to be extraordinarily unlikely that they would fall by as much as they did. Um, So I think you can't get round this this inherent unpredictability of lots of very significant factors that should be relevant to monetary policy, which is why I don't think you can get rid of the words probably and likely in any kind of useful guidance, because otherwise it's, it's actually unhelpful guidance
0: I'm afraid we've uh, run out of time uh, I think it's likely that you probably uh, thought this evening's event was uh, enjoyable so please join me in thanking the speakers